Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading researchers, authors, and clinicians discussing issues in attachment theory. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. Today, Karen concludes her conversation with Dr. Peter Frankel on attachment theory and family systems theory. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you today here from Chaddock. We are going to be continuing the series that we recently just kicked off about attachment theory and family therapy. And um, I am just so excited about this series and the guests that we were able to set up to be here to talk with me about family therapy and family systems theory. I want to go ahead and give you an introduction of who I am going to be interviewing today. And it is Dr. Peter Frankel. And he is an associate professor of psychology at City College of New York. He is also a former faculty member at the prestigious Ackerman Institute for the Family and NYU Medical Center. And he also has a private practice in New York City. He has published on a wide range of topics, including integrative approaches to couple and family therapy, time issues in couples, which I want to add, I have found particularly fascinating that area that he writes about and distress and divorce prevention. He's also done um, qualitative research and written on family-based trauma treatment. I want to also tell you about some of his books. He is the author of Sync Your Relationship, Save Your Marriage, Four Steps to Getting Back on Track. And his newest book uh, is going to be coming out quite soon, Last Chance Couple Therapy. In fact, I think it's already out. Last Chance Couple Therapy, Bringing Relationships back from the brink and that's uh, published by Norton he also uh, wrote the um, family-based approach to treatment related to relational trauma in incest so this guy is prolific like I had so much fun getting to know him and everything he has written in terms of preparing for this podcast. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy what he has to say. I also want to draw your attention to the article that he wrote that made me like aware of him and what he is doing in the field of family therapy and that was in the psychotherapy networker there's two versions of it um there's an older one that's longer but a more recent one that you can easily find on the web is whatever happened to family therapy so i think you're really gonna enjoy what he has to share with us and the interview will be coming right up so just hang tight Hello, Dr. Frankel, and thank you for continuing this conversation about the history of family systems theory, the current state of family systems theory, and the overlap of it with attachment theory. And one of the things that you were sharing when we last spoke was this idea that you share 
from your early experience where you were seeing a child and you thought, you know, I, I need to see the parents or, you know, understand more about the whole family. And it's exactly what Bolvi said. And his supervisor refused to allow him to see the mother of this child. Uh, and so I, you know, sometimes I think, gosh, you know, we're slow moving here. because. <laughs> well, it's a good example of how ideology yes. interferes with clinical practice. Because mm. to any human being who lives in a family and has a problem, <laughs> psychological or otherwise, it's obvious that our relationships have an impact on our mental health. It's obvious yes. to anyone. Um, so, so this is where the psychoanalytic theory, with all the things that I think are great about it, really interfered with the obvious thing of looking at how the attachment relationship develops between yes. a parent and a child. It, it's so obvious to any parents and, and to kids too. And yet our theories get in the way of seeing what people know instinctively and working with the relevant, um, you know, treatment group. And, uh, you know, you're absolutely right. It will be struggled just as I did initially, you know, much later to make a case for seeing a mother and, and her difficult son. I, I, I also worked with a guy who had been um, an inpatient diagnosed with schizophrenia, young man living with his, sing his single mom uh, and having a lot of troubles getting launched into life. Yes. And, uh, and the same thing happened. I, I went to my supervisor. I think it was, in fact, the same supervisor. Uh, <laughs> I'm very grateful to her for being open-minded. And I said, you know, I, I really feel like I've got to see Craig with his mom because, you know, what's going, what I'm hearing from him is that things go on with his mom that don't really support his emerging adulthood, even though she wants it to be launched. There's some mixed message he's getting. So I read a little bit. I read Jay Haley's book, actually, Leaving Home. Yeah. Which was an excellent book about hard to launch young people and how to work with families. And I used a family systems approach, basically taught myself um, and only later got, uh, you know, coursework and, and studied with Mnuchin and people like that. But, uh, but working with the son and the mother was the turning point. You know, I could see all the ways in which the mom uh, was supportive and, of course, really wanted her son to thrive, but in uh, sort of unconscious ways was at times undermining uh, what he was doing and how he could also be difficult. So we worked on how they could have a more supportive relationship, how he could do the things he needed to do to test out his adult uh, skills. And we we really made fairly short shrift of that therapy once I brought them together. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the thing that kept, I remember hearing this as a graduate student, the reason uh, from a psychodynamic point of view for working with a kid or a teen and not seeing the mom or seeing the mom or the dad and not seeing the teen. The, the term that I always remember from the, my training back then was you don't want to quote muddy the transference. Mm. And so the whole idea was that the relationship between a client and, or a patient and the therapist uh, is a lot about the transference. So if I'm working with a 12 year old boy, he's going to have inact 
with me the things that he does with his mom or or his dad and that's the transference that we work with the transference um and the idea was that even if i just spoke with the mom never never i saw her that that would somehow bias me in my openness to the transference with the teen this is for real and at now when we i say these words it's like you know 30 years later in my career it's like are you kidding like transference i say this this is transference is a real thing yes it's, it's a pretty robust thing like if we really believe that transference is an important thing that happens in therapy you can say all sorts of things and talk to a lot of people and it's still going to happen it's and you're going to see it if you're a tuned therapist me talking to a kid's mom isn't going to influence me so much that I don't see the transference or that the kid knows I spoke to his mom isn't going to change what he's or she's doing with me. Do you, you follow what I'm saying? Of like, course. If it's yeah. a real thing, as Freud would say, it's overdetermined. It's, it, it is very powerful. And that's also uh, kind of the basis of my critique of this sort of blank slate, classical psychoanalytic thing, which I was trained in. You know, it's, it's you know, when we come to our clients and we, we kind of reserve our feelings and we we just ask them to free associate and they're asking for advice or suggestions and they want a kind of warm, connected therapist and we don't give that to them. Guess what kind of transference they have? Negative. Right. You say, well, that's not about the relationship we're having with the client. It's because of their family of origin. And we make all sorts of wrongheaded assumptions based on the fact that we're not being what people expect us to be, which is like a warm, supportive, helpful person. And and so it's an artifact of the method that people start thinking that we're being rejecting. And then we mistakenly attribute that to their to their experiences in their real relationships. It's it's a very kind of confused idea. Mm-hmm. So you know, research from Carl Rogers all the way on from the sixties and on on the therapeutic alliance which I've written about a lot in my, in my new book uh, yes. with, with couples, um, especially the last chance couples. Uh, research over and over shows that, uh, that therapy works best uh, when clients feel that the therapist is genuine, warm, structuring, and so forth, uh, and doesn't work so well at all when a therapist is removed and not you know, showing any emotion and so forth, not genuine. And I'm not talking about sharing our personal stuff. In this respect, yes. I'm generally quite conservative. I don't share a lot about my own life, except at very opportune moments where other things don't work. But um, but we're just talking about being a person, you know, a welcoming person who who does give advice. And me giving some advice to a client when that's what they're asking for doesn't mess up the therapy relationship. It enhances it. And it certainly enhances people's functioning in the world. So again, there's so much research from cognitive behavioral and other uh, research and and therapy showing the effectiveness, for instance, in teaching communication skills. I do that with almost every couple. Research-based communication skills coming out of the prep program from the University of Denver, Howard Markman, Scott Stanley, and so forth. With With kids that I'm working with individually, along with the family i'm teaching them so often social skills and so forth that they're having a hard time with emotion regulation you know one of the great contributions of attachment theory in our field is putting the focus 
on the ways in which people often have a hard time regulating or modulating negative emotion. So teaching mindfulness skills, helping them calm down. I think for most of us, this is just common practice at this point. But there was a point in our field where you were not supposed to give any behavioral coping sorts of tips. Let the client find out for themselves. Well, I could take a very long time if, if it ever happens. So I'm at this point, someone who practices an action insight integrative approach. I've never, to be honest, I've never seen insight alone without some concrete suggestions about how to cope better. I've never seen insight alone um, completely help a person do better, recover, whatever. It's insight, understanding the unconscious, the family of origin, and so forth. And then we use that as a platform for saying, okay, so what do you need to try differently? Let's do some experiments and possibility and see what happens. So it's a both ends. Action alone without insight, not so great. Insight alone without action, also not so effective. Let's do it all. Yeah. Just while you were talking, I had a person name come into my mind that we haven't mentioned Chloe Madonna's <laughs> oh Chloe she is fantastic <laughs> I really like Chloe yeah because when you were talking about inserting some intervention I thought that so master she's a master in fact my first supervisor was shout out to uh, Dr. Linda Carter who uh, ran and uh, the family studies unit at Melhauser Labs and then at the family at, at the child guidance uh, uh, oh gosh why am i blanking on the name child study center that harold Koplowitz directed for years at myu and and linda was my first family therapy supervisor and she was trained by salvador mnuchin chloe madonis and jay haley so and she was herself an excellent therapist i learned so much from linda uh and a lot of that was stuff that she absorbed from chloe jay haley and sal and i you know, yeah, I, I really liked a lot of what Chloe had to say. Very forceful. Yes. Therapist. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so there was this time in, you know, beginning in the, the, the 50s and 60s and then yep. continuing through the 70s and 80s where we could almost say this was all the rage, family therapy, systems theory. One line in one of your articles uh, says it was a movement. Clearly it was a movement. Um, And then there's this feeling now that so much of this has faded away. Now I know there's another side, another way of thinking about that in terms of it's just become much more integrated. But uh, do you, do you think um, you mentioned the medical model? You mentioned um, we talked earlier about you know treating an individual or only looking at the individual symptoms. Do you think that is a large part of of what happened here? I mean, you can't even you can't even open a family therapy case file. <laughs> like you have to open a file on all different people if you're going to get paid, for example. Right. Um, so, because what you, what they were talking about and what you were learning and practicing, it was working. It was, and it still is. If anything, as I said earlier, there's so much research on couple therapy for 
alcohol overuse, Barbara McCready and her group, um, on couple therapy for depression, Mark Wisman and his group, um, family-based uh, psychoeducational approaches for um, persons who have a diagnosis of schizophrenia. I can go on and on. Um, yes. there, there's the Maudsley model, Eisler yes. at, at the Maudsley uh, Clinic in London. Um, you know, all of these groups have shown over and over again the effectiveness of family and couple therapy. It's there's no question about it. And here's the thing: you you named um, a couple of the of the issues, but there's a few more. Uh, one is one is simply that that actually family therapy and couple therapy is being taught, but not anymore as much in freestanding institutes. Instead, it's been integrated into um, coursework for MFTs, of course, yes. but also uh, I teach at a master's in mental health counseling program at City College, and I teach a two-semester sequence in family couple counseling. I taught in the doctoral program in clinical psych for years, family therapy. So it, it is being taught. Um, the the freestanding institutes are not as as many, but in some ways, you know, uh, that's a, just a result of, of of a sort of stage of a development of a field, you know, initially yes. an approach that isn't accepted in the academic context finally does get accepted. So that's number one. That's good news, right? Yes. But the bad news is that the prevailing medical model of psychiatry has in has interfered with uh, taking on an individual uh, a family systems approach. So, you know, at the same time that family therapy was increasing in its, in its popularity, uh, also we saw the development of psychotropic medications for depression, for schizophrenia and so forth. And because frankly of the greater economic and political power of the medical establishment that dispenses those medications, and because people would like to think that they can solve their depression by taking a pill, and not by changing their relationships, um, these became uh, viewed as the treatments to be most frequently reimbursed. So, you know, the, the economics of our field, which is the insurance companies, of course, favor approaches that are touted to be, or shown to be, but, but uh, touted to be briefer and simpler. That's one thing uh, that has interfered with uh, for certainly also psychodynamic psychotherapy, um, extended uh, psychodynamic psychotherapy being reimbursed. You know, there's a lot of insurance companies that will require a, you know, like a reinsurance thing at six sessions. I'm sure you're familiar with yes. that, right? Well, psychoanalytic psychotherapy doesn't get done at six sessions. Even brief yeah. psychodynamic psychotherapy is a little more than six sessions. Yes. So the, the insurance company and their... Um, effects on the field, the way they've shaped uh, the mental health um, uh, world is profound. And, and then, as I said, all the, the, the fMRI studies that show brain differences between persons norm, quote normal and persons with depression have been misinterpreted to suggest that it's all in the brain. But as we know from Dan Siegel and many other people, including a lot of the attachment researchers, 
brain development is a social thing. Yes. You know, the, the, the brain develops through social interaction. Brain, in fact, some people, even Gregory Bateson back in the day, uh, pioneered this idea that the mind is beyond our own skull. That the mind is something like that you and I are sharing right now. We're creating a mind and we're influencing each other's thinking. So, so this idea that it's all in the self. Another factor that interferes with a systemic approach is our, frankly, Western, Eurocentric, American, particularly American ideology of the rugged individual. Yes. You know, and you see this still in all these action flicks, you know, like, you know, the world was coming apart and one man, now sometimes one woman, Wonder Woman, saves the day like this. We love the story of the hero who can overcome all odds. And that has interfered with all sorts of things like community development and the fragmentation of communities and so forth. Um, but it also has affected our approach to treatment because the idea is if a person has symptoms, we're going to treat the person by themselves and help them overcome all odds. As opposed to if a person has symptoms, it's likely a reflection of something going on in their intimate uh, couple or family world. You know, one of the things, I'll give you a case in point here. As you well know, ADHD is diagnosed uh, and, and Ritalin and Adderall medications are given to you know thousands, if not millions of kids every year. Well, look, there's all sorts of reasons that kids have trouble paying attention. And it's not always the neurodevelopmental issue, the true ADHD. And I certainly know from clinical experience and certainly the research, there are kids who truly have a neurodiverse um, functioning when it comes to attention um, and hyperactivity, no question. I've seen kids who quote have it who, and really right. do. But there are a whole lot of kids who are having trouble sitting in class, being hyperactive, paying attention. Where the issue is not in their brain; the issue is in their family. So one of the things we or know that, or how their family system affects their brain. Well, exactly. That's what we're saying here. That that. Whatever we're doing, just to explicitly state that. That's right. That that yeah. The, the the brain is always there. We can't take our brain out. <laughs> so things are going on in our social world that dysregulate us. They get us anxious. They get us and and there's brain there and there's experience and so the brain is involved. I'm not dissing the brain. Believe me, I believe in the brain. And the <laughs> brain. But the brain doesn't exist. In, in its own little vacuum, know, or... vacuum. So, you know, Rapetti and, and colleagues back in 2002, and there's more recent updates on this, shows the impact of parent conf interparental conflict on kids as a general risk factor. So high conflict parent interactions has all sorts of negative effects on kids and their brains. Like, yes. can they pay attention? Can they learn effectively? Uh, are they depressed, anxious? We talk in child psychopathology about internalizing disorders of anxiety and depression and somaticizing and externalizing disorders of, of um, conduct disorder and oppositional defiant acting out kinds of things, right? So a kid with ADHD, the first thing I teach my students to do is always assess what's going on in the family because a fair number of kids who 
teachers suspect have eight have quote ADHD. What they have is a family that's quite dysfunctional, and we have to help the family. And guess what? These so-called ADHD disappears. And you know, one of the oldest concepts in family systems is the notion of triangulation. Yes. With that, so you have two parents, or let's say a single mom and her mom as co-parents, or whatever the configuration. The parenting persons are fighting um, intensely, and all of a sudden, the kid has problems. And now the parenting persons are not yelling at each other about, I'm going to leave you, or you screwed up with the money. Now they're focusing on their kid who's in trouble at school. And the kid is stabilizing an otherwise unstable parent parenting system and taking the, 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 the intensity away from their marital or relationship conflicts, the adult ones, and putting it on the kid which temporarily stabilizes the family, but at a cost, because that's yes. the problem. I actually had an eight-year-old kid once who was like a very well-behaved kid. And then his parents started fighting and thinking about divorce. And all of a sudden, this kid has attentional issues and he's hyperactive in school. And the parents are like, we don't get it. You know, let's call him uh, Roger. You know, Roger has always been so well-behaved and good at school. And now... He's having these difficulties and throwing things at home and all this. So, okay. so I'm already thinking triangulation, you know, and effects of the parents' conflict. So I interview this kid by himself. I said, so Roger, I don't get it. Like, your parents say you've always been a well-behaved kid and so forth and so on. And what's going on? He said, you know, doctor, this is an eight-year-old kid. He says, doctor, <laughs> I figured out pretty quickly that if I just misbehave, then my parents will stop talking about divorce because then they're worried about me. Wow. I'm like, wow. Yes. Deliberately inserting himself and creating problems to, to take the parents' attention off each other and stabilize the family. <laughs> I was like astounded. Wow. I think that, you know, one of the ways Great. when I was in my marriage and family therapy program, they would talk about that as the child becomes a lightning rod for whatever is going on between the couple to deflect, you know, a lot of my training was in Bowen systems theory, but to lower anxiety, you know, we know a triangle will lower anxiety. Um, so, but, you know, here's this kid, it, it's, it, it's amazing sometimes, you know, um, and it probably, of course, relates to some of what you said earlier, our set thinking in a certain way. And a kid just comes in and says, hey, look, this is what's happening. And it's such a truth. I mean, just imagine if I didn't have a systemic point of view and I just treated this kid individually and we gave him medication. Not good. Right. Right. Number one, probably not effective at all because the parents are still fighting and the kid is still sacrificing himself. As Sal would say, Sal always talked about, you know, how kids will sacrifice themselves um, to keep the family together by misbehaving. I had another kid, teenager. Parents were fighting. Father was messing up a lot with, with finances, losing job. He had this whole, I remember this very clearly, had this whole theory about, you know, investing in gold. And then he have another theory. And this kid who was at Stuyvesant, right, top high school in New York, very well behaved, very bright. He, he stole some credit cards from, from friends. He had never done anything like this. So the parents are like, what's going on with our kid? You know? And Sal yeah. said, I was in supervision with Mnuchin at the time. 
And Sal said in his inimitable voice, he said, Peter, tell the parents that they have a very loyal son. Then you pause and you wait for the reaction. This is Sal. And and then you say, yes, your son is so loyal. He is willing to sacrifice his entire life and get in trouble with the law just to keep the two of you from arguing. Isn't that Mm -hmm. something? What a loyal son you have. (laughs) And I did it. Not with that voice. Yes. I said this and the parents were like, oh, my God. Yes. And, And things changed very quickly. The kid never misbehaved again. The father got his shit together. You know, the parents stopped fighting. Yeah, it took a little bit of work. Basically, this happens all the time. Bone was what's spot on about triangulation. Yes, yes. Well, I um, am aware that we are running out of our time together, but I just um, am so grateful for this discussion. And I think family systems theory i don't just think it it's true it relates to everything we're talking about today as well as you said um in one of your updated articles i know we don't have time to go into all this but i just at least want to make mention that it family therapists have long time been talking about systematic oppression and you know racism and these kinds of other things and even i wish we had time to look at this generational transmission of trauma so you know what is that exactly yes it's related to epigenetics and things like that but there are certain environments as you were saying where that will be expressed more readily um so it, it it's all there and you know i am wanting to keep the flame alive <laughs> for this kind of thinking and um i want you to give uh i want to give you an opportunity to share any books any training programs anything uh maybe for therapists who aren't well steeped in this kind of thinking um or anything advanced as well sure well in terms of training of course i want to shout out my 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 uh, former um uh, professional home, although I, I still uh, do workshops there. The Ackerman Institute for the Family. Fine yes. Um, if you're renowned, renowned place. Renowned. Um, and I would also say the Family Institute at Northwestern University, where I have excellent colleagues. Some of the best family and couple therapists in the world are in Chicago. From uh, Walsh, Shay Lebeau, Anthony Chambers, um, many people. And uh, they they have an excellent program at the Family Institute that was uh, was led for many many years by uh, Bill Pensoff, uh, and now is under the the uh, directorship of Anthony Chambers. Um, if you want to study with me, yes, apply to <laughs> the <laughs> Masters in Mental Health Counseling program. If you happen to be an undergrad or you want to get into get a get a counseling degree, because I teach a two year sequence in couple and family work. And in terms of books, I'm very happy to say uh, that I have a, a, a book coming out at the end of this year with Norton uh, called Last Chance Couple Therapy, Bringing Relationships Back from the Brink. And in it, I uh, describe my integrative approach, which is called the therapeutic palette integrative approach, a very flexible approach to working with some of the most challenging Couples, high conflict, couples where there's been affairs or violence or uh, substance overuse, 
couples that are mismatched in terms of their personal life chronologies, like when they want to have a baby or uh, some often agreeing on what they want to do, but very different on by when, uh, when to retire, when to move out of the city, and then low passion or no passion couples. So I put everything I know into that book. <laughs> so I, I would love it if people would pick it up. and Yes. And, and so and, it's yeah. it's already on Amazon for pre-order. I didn't even know that. Yes, okay. it is. It is. So people can pre-order. Um, okay. And uh, yeah, I'm sure it's going to be fantastic. Another book that I mentioned in, in our previous talk uh, that's coming out in October and actually is also in pre is you can order it as an ebook already is the sixth edition of the, the, really the classic text in couple therapy and research called the clinical handbook of couple therapy was started by al german one of our great leaders in the field and uh the current edition is edited by jay lebeau who's also the editor of family process and doug schneider uh, who's a professor in, um, at, in Texas to leading people. There are excellent chapters in that book by all sorts of folks, Sue Johnson, of course, and uh, John Gottman and Mona Fishbane, myself, happy to say, and many others. So um, that is an excellent resource for people. Well, thank you again so much for being here and sharing some of your experiences and this rich history of family therapy and systems theory. It's just been such a treat. I feel like I could talk to you for two days. <laughs> Do it again, Karen. It was fun. Appreciate talking to someone who, who is so, you know, expert and well well versed in the field. So let's let's do it again anytime. All right, thank you. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory. 